Thank you, Commissioner. Um, I'll repeat communications. So item number two is communications. The minutes will reflect that the Youth Commission participated in this meeting with remote access. The Commission recognizes that public access to city services is essential and invites public participation in the following ways. First, public comment will be available on each item on this agenda. Comments or opportunities to speak during public comment period are available via phone call by calling 415-655-001, meeting ID 2493-190-7209, then pound and then pound again, or you can join us online through the WebEx system. When connected, you will hear the meeting discussions, but will be in muted and in listening mode only. When your item of interest comes up, please dial star three to be added to the speaker line if you've called in, or if you're joining us via WebEx, you may also raise your hand in the app. Alternatively, you may submit public comment in writing either of the following ways. Email them to the Youth Commission at youthcom at sfgov.org. If you submit public comment via email, it will be forwarded to the commissioners and will be included as part of the official file. You may also send your written comments via U.S. Postal Service to our office in City Hall at 1 Dr. Carlton B. Goodlett Place. Room 345, San Francisco, California, 94102. Those attending the meeting in person will have the opportunity to speak in public comment first before remote access. That concludes my communications. Great, thank you. Clerk, can you please call item number three? Item number three is approval of the agenda. Okay, so commissioners, please take this time to look over today's agenda. As a reminder, there's an expectation that everyone looks at the agenda prior to the meeting, and I'll accept any motions whenever y'all are ready. Motion to approve. Seconded, Commissioner Utting. Commissioner Barker Plummer motions to approve today's agenda, seconded by Commissioner Utting. Is there any discussion on this motion? Seeing none, is there any public comment? Um, if members of the public would like to speak, please press star three or raise your hand in the WebEx app, or if you're here in person, you can line up behind the podium. Um, and Chair, it seems you do not have public comment. Great, thank you. Um, so now we're gonna be doing a voice vote. All those in favor of approving the agenda, please say aye. 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 All those opposed say nay. Great, so the motion has passed. Clerk, can you please call item number four? Item number four is approval of the minutes for April 3rd, 2023 Full Youth Commission meeting. So commissioners, please take this time to look over the minutes from the last Full Youth Commission meeting and I will accept any motions whenever y'all are ready. Motion to approve Commissioner Etting. Seconded. Commissioner Utting mo motions to approve the minutes, seconded by Commissioner um, Adair. Is there any discussion on this motion? I think I did see that, like, at the top, like, by the roll call, it was, like, left blank, the line where it's, like, the number of people present and absent. At least when I looked online, I don't have it in front of me now. Which at the At the top, where it's, like, the attendance, it lists all the people either present or absent, but, like, the totals are blank. Uh, I'll look. It might be fine. So did you want to make a motion with those amendments or? Sure. I, it might be easier if the original person who made the motion just amends their motion to include it. I can just recommend to say with the updated um, attendance count okay. as the motion. Okay. 
Was it you? Yeah. So would it be amend the motion? What, like what, what's the link that I would say? Motion to approve the agenda with the updated okay. attendance count. Motion to approve the agenda with the updated attendance count, Commissioner Utting. Set, seconded by Commissioner Dare. Commissioner Utting motions to um, approve the minutes with the updated attendance count, seconded by Commissioner Adair. Um, is there any discussion on this motion? Seeing none, is there any public comment? Um, if members of the public would like to speak, plus, uh, please press star three or raise your hand in the WebEx app or line up behind the podium if you're attending in person. And Chair, you have no public comment. Thank you. Public comment is now closed. Um, so now we'll be taking a voice vote on the minutes. All those in favor of approving the minutes, please say aye. Aye. All those opposed, say nay. Great. Clerk, can you please call item number five? Yes, item number five is general public comment for matters under the jurisdiction of the Full Youth Commission, but not on today's agenda. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment on um, this matter should start to line up behind the podium and or press star three now if you're calling in remotely. If you're joining us via WebEx, you should raise your hand in the app. Your cue to begin your comments will be you have been unmuted if you've called in or you will hear two beeps if you join the meeting via WebEx. Also for those attending in person and remotely, we will be having public comment on the hearing. Um, and I believe you don't have public comment. Thank you, public comment is now closed. Clerk, can you please call item number six? Yes, item number six is hearings, hearing to discuss and understand what is happening with Juvenile Hall since its closure in 2021, as well as what efforts are uh, presently being made to secure the intent closure of Juvenile Hall and services being offered to support the youth inside. Great, thank you so much. So yeah, um, now we're on the item of the hearing. Today we'll be hearing from different organizations, offices, departments, um, and youth about what has happened with Juvenile Hall since its closure in 2021 or um, proposed closure. Commissioner Pimentel and Commissioner Colleen both called this hearing to get some answers and to look for ways to see how we can move this issue forward. Um, so basically how it will work is Commissioner Colleen and Commissioner Pimentel will introduce each presenter um, and each presenter will give their presentation and then we'll have opportunities for public comment and discussion all at the end. So um, be sure to like save any questions that you have for each presenter. Um, so yeah, I'll be passing it off to Commissioner Colleen and Commissioner Pimentel to introduce the hearing a little bit more. Awesome. Thank you, Chair Nguyen. So can you guys all hear me? Yes. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay. Good evening, everyone. My name is Commissioner Colleen. I represent District 9, and I am the chair of the, the Youth Commission's Transformative Justice Committee. I'd like to apologize for not being able to be in person today for a very important hearing that I, along with Commissioner Pimentel, have been working on for months, but I will be involved via online. And hello. Hello everyone, and my name is Commissioner Pimentel, and I represent District 10, and I am the Vice Chair of the Youth Commission's LGBTQ Plus Task Force. All right, um, before I um, say what the uh, meaning of this hearing is, I think there's a comment on the WebEx from Tiffany Sutton. Um, staff, did you see that? Yes, I did see that, and yes, Tiff Finney, um, you are on the correct link. Awesome. Okay. So today's hearing is mainly to further understand the implications of the closure of Juno Hall in 2021, 
while also assessing the current efforts to ensure the closure of juvenile hall and the possible challenges slash difficulties in completing this. This hearing will allow our commissioners and the public to not only understand what services are being offered to the youth in juvenile hall, but also the potential impact of the closure on the surrounding community and answer possible questions surrounding different city departments actions in closing down juvenile hall. Lastly, I think this hearing is a crucial step in understanding the implications of the closure and ensuring that both the group and the community are supported during the transition. And our first presenter is Board of Supervisors, District 10 Office Legislative. Legislative aide Tracy Brown, the Board of Supervisors, District 10 office alongside District 9 were the main advocates for the juvenile hall closure in 2021. Both offices advocated fiercely to make youth justice the forefront in addressing issues to youth incarceration. And today we have Tracy Brown who worked on the issue for the District 10 office and sat on the closing juvenile working group. Tracy is a passionate community advocate who is highly committed to fostering safe and equitable communities. She has been serving as a legislative aide to the Board of Supervisors District 10 office since 2018. During her tenure, um, she has been a key advocate for youth justice, demonstrating a firm commitment to finding solutions for youth incarceration issues. She was instrumental in advocating for the successful closure of Juvenile Hall in 2021 and a driving force in bringing in youth voices to the discussion surrounding juvenile justice. Thank you for Tracy for being here. Before you start presenting, Sharon Nguyen has some directions for the hearing today. Yeah, so um, thank you so much, Tracy, for being us being here with us today. Um, we'll take all, like I said earlier, we'll take all questions and all public comment at the end of all of the presentations, but you'll have 15 minutes to present. Um, so commissioners, if you could hold all of your questions and people in the audience as well, if you have any questions, please just hold them for the end. Um, and yeah, you'll have 15 minutes and I might need to cut you off um, just because we have a really tight schedule. But yeah, you can begin whenever you're ready. Thank you so much. Um, Thank you. Uh, short people problems, right? Uh, for many years, there's been a push to close Juvenile Hall. This is not a new idea that started this year or in 2020. Juvenile Hall um, is the place where kids go before they actually go to court. So it is a place where they are pre they they are pre court pre adjudicated, right? We've heard many stories of how youth are treated in different juvenile halls, and we have joined with many advocates to want to shut down the entire system of juvenile hall. These are a few things that we didn't know when we first started. One, we did not know that the judge actually made the final decision. So when we worked on the ordinance, which I'm sure you read ahead of time, we went into this not knowing that the judge had to be on board with the final decision. We did not know that we still owed money on the facility. That's something that we learned um, after we passed the ordinance. And then the third thing we didn't know was what the state laws mandated. So when we said we wanted a new rehabilitative center, we didn't know that we had to have so many yards between the hallways and stuff like that. Those are all things that we learned as we went forward in the process. So I wanted to share, first of all, the unexpected things that we didn't know as we went in. We are still 100% committed to closing down Juvenile Hall with that said. We wanted to hear from various members of the community and our office invested a lot of money 
um, in, along t going into the HRC so that they can conduct different groups of people who are most impacted by juvenile hall. We had several here um, meetings with different groups and we were available. We attended every single group and made ourselves available to meet with groups who wanted to meet with us to hear their input on the closure of juvenile hall. One of the reasons for juvenile hall closure is the high cost. And that was something that we were able to get other people on board with. So they may have believed in a juvenile hall system, but they were not liking the actual cost. And so that gave us the opportunity to kind of look at the cost effectiveness of a juvenile hall. So there's a lot of um, issues around um, juvenile hall and the recommendations, but I want to I, I want to be um, respectful of the time. I think a lot of you guys, if you read the report, you know some of what I was going to say. Um, we the recommendations came out, and this is where we are today. Again, we are still supporting the closure of juvenile hall. A lot more difficult than we thought. Still 100% committed. We're working on the recommendations and some of the recommendations that come to the to the top for us. We're supporting nonprofits and figuring out how to get a better referral system and making sure that kids are getting connected to the service. We're concerned with the mental health services and lack of mental health beds for youth. I actually got um, worked with the mayor's office to get mental health beds. We could not find slots for these beds. So this is an issue I wanted to just raise. We believe that we can still create a non-institutional place of detention for those that do not have to be in custody. We did learn through laws and, and other things that there are some charges that, that the state says kids need to be in custody for. Um, for all others, we are strongly recommending and working on and supporting an alternative to that. We support the well-being advocate that was recommended. We support stronger diversion protocols, and that starts with the police on how to not have kids go to juvenile hall if they don't have charges that require them to be there. There was a proposal in the recommendations for a well-being center. We feel strongly that this is something that we can, the city can work on, is this well-being center with well-being advocates that actually include the family and the youth in developing their own plan for success. So it's not really a judge or a probation officer, but it's actually the kids saying this is what will work. And we don't do enough to listen to what our youth are saying they need or what our families are saying. We need to get a better system for working with our unaccompanied youth. So kids that are undocumented, and I'm sure you heard about how the blame is all these un unaccompanied kids are selling drugs and we all know that they are victims because a lot of them are being drug trafficked. So what are we doing for those youth right now? We hear all this talk about the tenderloin and resources going there. What about the kids that are there that need services? We don't have alternative placements. It's hard to get foster homes. So the city, we need to look at how we're going to provide that. And so I am asking for you all 
to really be champions and advocates of finding these safe spaces because our foster care systems are not working. We have a 0% success rate of kids placed in foster homes at Juvenile Hall. And Chief Miller can correct me if I'm wrong, um, but the last time we got a report from one of the placements, it, it, they, the, the placement center actually said all of the kids had ran away at least once. They were brought back and they were successful maybe later, but at one time or another, they were unsuccessful. What, what family supports do we need? There are some family supports that we don't even know about that are not in the recommendations and that would come from having real genuine youth and family input into the plan. Also, we need school supports because we know that at school, some kids don't feel safe. It may be a reason why they bring something to school with them. And then now you just started this whole criminal record, all because a kid did not feel safe. So how do you address that? How do we address that as a city? How do we con continue to support the many community alternatives that we have? And we have some great programs out there. We need to figure out a system and, and you as the youth commission can actually monitor that system. How many referrals were made per month to a nonprofit and how many connections were made? Because we don't wanna count referrals, we actually wanna count connections. And again, we need to look at neighborhood safety. If we're not addressing the root causes of why these kids are getting into trouble and what the root causes of poverty are and all of that, then we're gonna to continue to see this. So it is a bigger systemic issue. We have a lot of advocates that are working on this day in and day out. This is the main reason I came to work for Supervisor Walton was specifically to do some juvenile justice reforms. I am super disappointed at where we're at today. Um, I, I lose sleep over it every time I think about it. And I want to apologize to the youth of San Francisco that we're not able to have a closure when we said, and even with the pandemic hitting, I don't think we would have closed because like I shared some of the things we didn't know when we started, um, we couldn't really move that forward. And so you'll hear from the different departments and I do wanna commend the departments. They are trying just to do a lot of justice reform. Chief Miller is one of the um, biggest justice reformers that have worked at Juvenile Hall and so I'm happy that we have an, a, a champion that actually believes in closing down her department. <laughs> Maybe not all of it, but some of it. Um, and and I do, you know, I do want to say I, I do want to leave you with with these three things that I think the Youth Commission can do. One is monitor where all the funding goes for for kids on probation. The second thing is monitor how how many mental health beds and mental health facilities there are for youth, because there isn't a good mental health plan for our youth of San Francisco, and I believe there's like another hearing on it. And then the third is, let's let our kids and families tell us what they need to be successful. Maybe it's a job, maybe it's moving from a neighborhood. And, and finally, this is not on the Youth Commission, but on San Francisco, how do we make schools in our neighborhoods safer so that kids are feeling loved and safe, they don't have to commit a crime to, to live, 
they have enough food, and, and let's look at those deeper issues when we look at, at the youth. So not just seeing youth as a statistic, not looking at youth for, oh my God, he did this. What is the story be before and why? And the reason I say that is because I've worked in this field for over 30 years, and every single time a kid is murdered, everyone comes forward and says, I worked with this kid. He was part of my program. He was a great kid. Somewhere we drop the ball. We the city, we the community, we the families, we the churches, we as in everybody is responsible for all of the children and all of the kids in San Francisco. And so when we hear that, where was the ball dropped and how do we get a program that keeps that ball and does not drop it on anybody? And so thank you for listening and I will be available. I do have to move my car, but I'll be back. Thank you. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much, Tracy, for presenting to the Youth Commission. Hopefully you'll be back later to answer some questions, but have fun moving your car. Um, thank you. The next presentation, um, I'll pass it off to Commissioners Colleen and Pimentel to introduce Katie Miller. Yes, so our second presenter is Chief Katie Miller from the Department of Juvenile Probation. Chief Miller has been in this role since 2020. Chief Miller has worked to improve the criminal justice system as a community-based reformer and direct service provider, government policymaker and funder, and most recently through her work in the district attorney's office. She is also responsible for leading the Juvenile Probation Department, GEPD, um, which locates, develops, and administers programs for the assessment, education, treatment, appropriate rehabilitation, and effective supervision of youth from the jurisdiction of the department. A few months ago, the commission, um, Commissioner Pimentel and I were fortunate to meet with Chief Miller to discuss Juvenile Hall, in which we learned abundant information about the conditions and resources offered for the youth inside. And the Youth Commission actually was able to get a tour of Juvenile Hall in February um, by Chief Miller. Um, so now we will present Chief Miller, um, who is here today to speak more about the 2020 closure of Juvenile Hall and what the department has done to address concerns about juvenile justice and the conditions of the juvenile justice building. Thank you. Great. Well, um, thank you so much, Chief Miller, for being here and presenting to us. Um, it was wonderful to tour the Juvenile Justice Center and to get our questions answered last time. So um, we're really grateful that you're coming back to answer more questions. Um, as a reminder, you'll have 15 minutes to present, and we'll take questions all at the end later. So, commissioners, please be sure to note down all of your questions, um, and feel free to start whenever you're ready. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. It's nice to see those of you again who I saw at the hall recently. Um, and uh, Commissioner Pimentel, you're going to be hearing us give a whole lot more information tomorrow at the Juvenile Justice Coordinating Council that I hope you can also bring back uh, to your colleagues. Um, so I have a ton of slides and information. I'm not going over all of them in detail by any measure, but they're all pieces of information that we thought it would be helpful for you, the commissioners, to walk away with today. Um, so I'm going to really touch on kind of the key points of them uh, to try to get at the questions that the commission provided to me beforehand. So I'm not sure, like, who do I tell to advance? Okay, tell to me. Um, and I wanted to just note that uh, I have a couple people from probation here with me. I have Shane Thomas, who is the director of our juvenile facilities, who you all met, those of you who came to tour, and Maria McKee, who's our director of research and planning, also available for questions later if you'd like. Um, so moving on, I just started with the first two slides of just what our department goals are, because I think it's really important for us to always ground our conversation in them, and I just want you to have them as you walk away today. 
Um, they are actually a combination of things that came from our commission, who adopted these goals last summer, but also from the actual closed juvenile hall work group report, um, and also from our department's race equity plan and the city's work to close the, our city's DJJ realignment subcommittee. So a whole lot of different work really has come up into these six goals. I'm going to draw your attention to this next slide of them, if you could advance it. Just to goal number four, because that's really what we're here to talk about, right? Which is creating a non-institutional, home-like, secure setting for young people who do need to be detained under the law, by the judge, right? Various limited reasons why we know we need to have young people in a secure space. And really want to note that that really lifts up the themes that came to the front during those closed juvenile hall worker processes. We want to make sure that whatever place like that we have as much as possible can be healing centered and developmentally appropriate, family centered, connected to community and culturally responsive. And I guess I just want to say that as we think about what the, the right space may look like, we know it's never ideal for a young person to not be able to go home, but we really want to ask ourselves, what can that place be look like that's a center of connection instead of a center of isolation while we have young people with us? Next slide, please. I'm going to spend most of my 15 minutes on this one slide and then whiz through all the others because, again, they're more a resource for you than something you need to really hear me talk about. The Closed Juvenile Hall Work Group report has 39 recommendations, 39 proposals in it. Seven of them are actually about a new place of detention, and the other 32 are about the steps we need to put in place to make sure that as few young people as possible actually hit those doors and that the young people who do hit the doors of detention are there as briefly as possible. So on this slide, it really lists a number of steps that we have taken to do those things. Um, and I'm just going to briefly touch on them. Each of these could be a presentation in and of themselves, right? Some of these things were already in the works during the closed juvenile hall work group process. Um, a lot of them are in the works now, some, some both. Um, but these are things that we've been working on that really do affect the number of young people in the hall every day, um, their experience there, and then where they exit to. So we've been doing work to both change what happens in San Francisco when a young person has a warrant for arrest. That's something that we have to do in partnership with the court. It's the court's decision always whether a young person gets a warrant or not. But we've made some real headway in other ways we can resolve situations where there may otherwise be a warrant for arrest. We also have done a lot of work with what's called our violation policy. When a young person's not doing well on probation, the standard practice used to be a young person's not doing well, you bring them into custody. And that's not something that we do in our department at this point. We take all possible steps to find a different resolution than using custody as that tool. We also, um, as a city and as a department, have been now investing directly in making sure that we have alternatives to secure detention for young people for whom uh, who can be somewhere else. So we fund both the San Francisco Boys Home now to keep its doors open. It's the only group home left in San Francisco. We used to have more options, but that's it. We fully fund it as a city. Um, and we also fund alternative family services to actually operate foster homes for young people who we could release out. They may not be able to go home. The judge has decided they can't, but they can be in a home and not in custody during their case. So we now invest in those to make sure they exist. Um, and have started that second partnership. We also have worked 
shoulder to shoulder with a number of community organizations um, through a facilitated process actually with an outside consultant to really work together on how we can work better together on what a young person's experience looks like, how we can best support young people and their families. Um, and that's led to actual new programming that's happened. Um, we uh, are working right now, one of the things we've heard a lot from young people and families is the need to have credible messengers in someone's life, right? A young person getting to be with somebody who's had a similar life path. Um, and that is actually something that's happening right now. We have funded some organizations to do that work, both in the community, but also in juvenile hall. So starting in the next couple of months, every day, all day during all waking hours, there will be credible messengers from the community working side by side with our juvenile hall staff and supporting our young people who are in detention. Um, we also have really had a lot of um, attention and thought to how we support families better. And one of the, there's a lot of ways we need to do that better as a system, including making sure that we're even helping families with economic, who are in economic distress. So for the first time ever, we've actually been able to do that, have started creating programs to invest financially directly into our families to help meet specific needs that they may have. That's something that just started coming to fruition this year. We've recently piloted, piloted in partnership with a number of community organizations, something new called the CARE Team. And so you heard Tracy talk about the need to make sure that every young person is connected with community. We are so lucky in San Francisco for the network of community organizations that we have. So under this new um, pilot, every young person being released from detention is being connected at release with a nonprofit organization. Um, sitting in circle and in team with that organization, with their probation officer, the young person, their caregiver, with that young person really defining what that plan is and what support they need um, as they make their way back into community. Uh, we also have expanded CARC, and CARC is the uh, Community Assessment and Resource Center. It is the uh, place in San Francisco where young people go when they are arrested but not detained. So they're given a, a citation, like a ticket, and they go to CARC for services. Uh, we've expanded the way we work with CARC so that every young person who isn't arrested gets that connection. And those last two things I said are really important because it means that every young person not coming to the hall is now connected to a community organization, and every young person who does go to the hall and then is released is getting connected to an organization. Um, and that, that's a real sea change for us, making sure that that's always the through line, right? That everyone has that link. Um, I also want to note uh, something else that Tracy brought up um, was the need to do a better job serving unaccompanied minors. So we've been working with, um, in partnership with Instituto and uh, CARC, Huckleberry Youth Programs, to create a new program specifically to support unaccompanied minors who may have contact with the justice system. Uh, and then I want to, and I'm skipping around, I skipped one. I also want to note that we've created a new tool that we use to actually decide when young people are going to come in through the doors of the hall at all. So for years, the department was using a tool um, that uh, kind of was inconsistent in its results. It was hard to do accurately, uh, wasn't actually based on kind of predicting risk. And so we really streamlined and we implemented a new tool about a month and a half ago um, that really looks at the basics. Is this a law violation that requires secure detention? Is there a warrant for this young person's arrest? Can we find a parent or guardian willing to come and care for them? Very basic decisions that help us make that call, but also require us as a department to really be transparent and accountable for our decisions. 
Um, and then I just want to note that we have really continued to do what we call justice reinvestment, right? So downsizing some of the work of the department that's traditionally been more supervision oriented, more custody oriented, and investing a lot of resources into community organizations and actually um, tracking that and sharing that number publicly now. Um, and then finally, the other big thing I just want to note is that in the middle of all of this process, uh, the state changed the laws in a big way. So in 2020, Governor Newsom signed what was called DJJ Realignment, Senate Bill 823, which said that the state's youth prisons would be closing, um, that we can no longer send young people to the state for those most serious offenses, and that uh, local jurisdictions have to now figure out what our solution is for those young people. And folks who came on the tour know that that's really changed uh, the nature of who's in the hall right now and our obligations locally. I'll talk about it a little bit more, but I just, I can't um, say enough that that is a really big sea change for counties that also really intersects with this discussion about closing down juvenile hall. Next slide. So super quick, and I won't dwell on it, this is just a list of all of the community organizations that JPD um, funds, either wholly or in part. And the ones that are highlighted in yellow actually show all new grants that have been awarded since October of 2022. So you can see a whole lot of new investment, a lot of which is going to result in programs directly in the hall. Next slide. So you asked to, for us to speak about the kind of admission and reentry process. It's super detailed. I'm going to give this very basic kind of slide, and then we're always happy to answer questions. But this slide shows the version of the, the experience for a young person who actually gets released at the detention hearing. That does not always happen. Some young people are in the hall for a lot longer. But giving this as kind of one path that a young person may experience, Anything orange on this slide represents something new that we have put in place in the last three years and really even more recently in the last year. Um, so in San Francisco, all arrests become by law, uh, by local policy, the police department has to call um, both CARC and the probation department. There's a decision made about where the young person goes. Are they being released with a ticket? Are they coming to the hall? Um, and then I've already talked a little bit about the new tool we have where we decide whether they do need to be detained or not. The admissions process is very detailed. When a young person's coming in, they're being assessed for a number of things. Um, our partners at SPY, Special Programs for Youth, Department of Public Health, is assessing their, to make sure there's not a physical emergency for them. They do a behavioral health assessment to make sure that they are um, cleared to be in the hall from a behavioral health perspective. Um, they, we also have to assess the young people uh, to ensure that the social dynamics that they may have with somebody else in the hall will help inform us about where they can be housed so that everybody feels safe. Um, and just a whole lot of questions and information and orientation for that young person. So I won't get into all of it. We're happy to share more information. It can be a really long experience for somebody coming through the doors. Um, and then I also want to note that once young people are in the hall now, um, we have a new role in the department called our connector who actually sits down with every young detained person to talk to them about what they may already be connected to in community, what interests they have, what needs they may have, so that we can start working with our partners on connecting thing, them to things that they may want and need when they do uh, transition out. Um, and then as I said, detention hearing is that first decision point for release. 
Hopefully, a young person who's in the hall will be released on home detention that day. If not, uh, they will be with us longer, and that question of release will continue. Continuing on, just want to note that juvenile hall consists of both uh, units for people who are here for a very short period of time, that kind of detention population that Tracy referenced. Median stay on those units is six days. And then there are some young people who are with us for much longer, especially with the new change in state law. That's two other units in the hall. And right now, the median stay is 534 days for the young men in, those, in that situation. Moving on. I wanted to just share with you the laws that are relevant to us that Tracy was talking about. Why do we need a secure place of detention at all? So I give these to you as a resource. There are both state laws that mandate that we have secure place of detention for some young people. The Superior Court, as Tracy noted, has to actually approve the secure place of detention in any jurisdiction. Um, and we look to the federal law for a definition of what secure means, and it means physically secure from a concrete building perspective, not staff standing in a doorway, right? So it has to be buildings that are physically secure. So I gave those to you so that you'll have them. I also gave you just a one-pager, you can keep advancing. One more. On this DJJ realignment, right? The closure at the state and kind of what that means for us locally so that you would have it as a resource. And then finally, moving on to the next slide, we offer up one of the questions that you asked, what you asked about the recommendations, you know, kind of do we agree with them? Are there things standing in the way of those? So I wanted to give you a document that we first created a year ago for the Board of Supervisors. And it goes through all of the recommendations from the report, which agencies need to be at the table to make them happen, and who is the primary kind of legal like decision maker for those. And so we wanted you to have them so you could really see for all the recs um, how those play out. Uh, I want to note that, you know, I feel like virtually everywhere on it that you'll see juvenile probation as the lead, we do feel like we've made real advances. But as you can see, it is a full table to get this work done. The very last thing I'll note on the last slide for you, very last slide, you can whisk through all of these, a lot of recommendations, is that we just left you with something that we talked about a little bit when you all were visiting, which is where are we in kind of redesign. Um, so the city did put money in our budget this year to bring in an architect to start working with some stakeholders, including young people, on what some new models could look like. Um, we're just sitting down right now to start working with an architect on that. Uh, there's not funding in the budget for a new hall at this time, but we know that we need to start at square one, and that's really that, that imagining together. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much, Chief Miller, for coming to the Youth Commission again and presenting to us. Um, I hope you can stay until the end where we can answer all of the questions all at once, but I'll pass it back to Commissioner Pimentel to introduce the next speaker. So our third presenter is Patty Lee from the Public Defender's Office. Patty Lee currently leads our Defend, Defend Division at the Public Defender's Office, which includes the office core work in representing individual clients in adult juvenile immigration post-conviction and mental health cases. A tireless advocate for the fair and humane treatment of youth, Patty began representing young clients in 1981 and served as the managing attorney of our Youth Defender Unit, formerly our juvenile unit, for over 30 years, promoting and implementing inno innovative strategies to reduce juvenile incarceration. Patty changed the course 
of juvenile defense and under her leadership um, nearly eliminated state institutional commitments from San Francisco by developing and promoting the use of social work services and defense-based disposition reports to argue against correctional institutional commitments. Patty is here today to represent the Public Defender's Office, but also as the chair of the, ju of the Closing Juvenile Hall Working Group. She is joined by Emily Goldman, who is a Youth Defender Manager in the Public Defender's Office, and Amy Uvar, um, who will be speaking about her system, system involvement. Thank you. Good evening, commissioners. I'm very excited to be here. Um, and uh, I just wanted to correct the record. Um, I left my perch at the Youth Defender Unit a year ago, uh, and I'm now the Chief of Defense uh, and Advocacy for the Office of the Public Defender. So I work, I still work very closely with the Youth Defender Unit, but I also work with uh, 10 other units in, in the criminal courts. So it has provided a wider perspective for me as uh, I moved downtown. And one of the reasons I have been such a fierce advocate uh, in juvenile courts, uh, not only to close uh, juvenile hall, hall, but to reform the system and to prevent the revolving door of juvenile justice where young folks move into the adult system. And I will tell you from my perch as I sit here today, um, there unfortunately are many young people that are moving into the criminal courts to the extent that we now have a young adult court. Um, however, I do find much hope in the process that we were engaged in over the past three years, and I will tell you that our office is 110% uh, in supporting the closure of Juvenile Hall, and we are still uh, involved in meetings with the Board of Supervisors. I think that might be my phone, so I apologize. <laughs> and so I, I just, I know that you've had a chance to read the ordinance, um, and I won't go over it, but I thought it was important to have a historical approach so that you would know uh, what we we're focused on. The two main points I want to bring up here is that we wanted to close Juvenile Hall, and that was supposed to happen by December 31st, 2021. We know it hasn't. Um, and also one of the most important aspects is expanding community-based alternatives to detention. Um, and uh, I will say that, yes, there is no funding right now to pay for opening or creating a new juvenile hall, but the funding in, in was um, uh, directed from the closure of juvenile hall. We know that it costs over 250000 per year for any child um, housed in juvenile hall. The funding that would come from the closure of juvenile hall would be directed to community programs so that those programs would be able to develop alternatives um, to incarceration. And so it's reinvesting the monies um, to create high quality, effective community-based alternatives. Um, and part of the work of 
of the uh, subcommittee. Uh, this was very important and I know it can be very dry and very boring. However, it is important to collect the data to provide the justification on what type of alternative secure placement would be uh, created. One of the important numbers that I wanted to impress upon you tonight is that Juvenile Hall is a 150-bed facility. Today, we're at 29 young people who are detained there. Um, of those uh, that are detained, um, there are six or seven, I'm not quite sure, that are in the secure track. So if you were to subtract that six or seven in the secure track commitment, we're, we're really running anywhere from 15 to 20 young people on any given day that the court feels is important to remain detained. And I don't want to go beyond that number of 20 because I know that there's been numbers floated around. I, I believe in probation department had mentioned maybe having 30 beds for an alternative um, site. However, if you build 30 beds, we're going to fill 30 beds. So if you look at the justification and the data analysis, analysis from the data um, and uh, needs assessment committee of which I was on, I, I would urge you to focus on that in looking at what is the true number of beds to build in a non-institutional home-like setting. Um, and what was um, no surprise to us who work in the system, but San Francisco uh, is very well resourced. Um, 42 programs we found out were serving incarcerated youth. And I just read um, the new uh, report that is pre will be presenting, presented tomorrow night, and I believe that there's about 17 programs that work with young uh, incarcerated youth. Um, and then we do have, uh, it was close to 90 community-based organizations, even mom and pop organizations that work with uh, young people, whether they're in or out of custody. And I want to emphasize the number of organizations that are housed in the communities, in your communities in which you live, and in the communities where many of our young people that are incarcerated come from, there is a wealth of organizations there. And I, I want to highlight those organizations. They are mentioned in the report. And these are the organizations which we want, based on your assistance, your advocacy, in identifying these organizations as alternatives to lockup, to jail. Um, and there was approximately $24 million that has been spent on agencies that work with incarcerated youth and youth in the system. These are Department of Public Health, uh, School District, Department of Children, Youth and Families, and Juvenile Probation. Um, in terms of the facilities, I'm very happy to hear that there has been an architect that has been hired. 
I'm hoping that there can be plans that uh, are drafted. Um, these were the considerations of what would be included in any architectural rendering. Um, the problem we ran into uh, was finding real estate uh, to have the alternative to juvenile hall. Many communities did not want a juvenile hall located in their community. They felt it was dangerous, it was risky, um, and uh, not in my neighborhood. And I think that that sentiment still survives as we speak today. And I think as young folks, you all are leaders in the city, that you would dispel that notion that these young people that might be housed due to unfortunate circumstances should have a, a home-like residential environment that is supported by the community, supported by the young people, and supported by, by um, agencies that specialize and work with um, young people that are trapped in the juvenile justice system. I will say that over the past three years since COVID started, we haven't seen a great increase in the number of youth being detained on any given day. We've seen a change in the administration of the prosecution, Chesa Bedin, who was more progressive, and then we had, uh, now we have Brooke Jenkins. Uh, unfortunately, we have seen an increase in the number of young people being arrested with a more tough on crime approach. Um, we are seeing young people as young as 12 and 13 years old being brought into detention. Um, and I'm hoping that uh, we can see a drop in the number of young people being brought in, whether they brought it, be brought in to the front gates of lockup or whether they're charged with a petition. And I bring this up because I think it is very, very important for you all to look at diversion programs that exist uh, in the community. There was mention of CARC. CARC is a diversion center. But there are other alternatives to detention besides CARC. There can be uh, non-institutional detention where there is not a footprint for that child having a rap sheet when they might be picked up by, by uh, an officer or detained by an officer. So we have to explore wider options. And even with the existing options of uh, diversion like the Make It Right program, we have not seen any referrals through our office, the Public Defender's Office, since August of 2021, and we know that those programs work. And this provides a second chance to young people who are deserving of the second chance. So I want to highlight this slide because racial disparities still exist. Um, Latino youth are six times more likely detained than white youth. 48% referred are detained. And unfortunately, black youth, no surprise to you all, 63% referred are detained. And it's 38 times more likely than non-black youth or white youth. Uh, and unfortunately, also no surprise, disparities are most acute with black 
uh, girls, 30 times more likely than white, white or other girls to be detained. Almost 50% of youth detained should not have been held. Uh, at the time of the report that was generated, uh, and I'm really happy to, to see that there's a new assessment tool uh, to determine whether children really should be de detained. 41% were overrides where there was a recommendation of not detention, but 41% were detained. And, and uh, Chief Miller, I'm really uh, excited to hear that there is a different policy on warrants, um, which uh, affects the number of young people um, being brought in, maybe for a violation because they uh, didn't uh, comply with the condition of probation. Um, so, Another aspect was harm reduction that was generated and a recommendation from the report. Harm reduction, I already mentioned, expanding diversion, uh, expediting detention hearing, that's going to result, uh, necessitate a change in law. And I mentioned this expanding detention alternative. I know that my colleague, Emily Goldman, has been involved with meetings with the police department to develop a uh, police diversion program where the police on the street, when they detain a young per person, have the discretion to release that young per person. Um, it, it is a program that uh, the police department has been working on collaboratively with the probation department, my office, and the district attorney's office. However, um, it has not been implemented yet, and I'm hoping that you might be able to provide some uh, advocacy efforts to make certain that this program is implemented. I know that when I first sat in these meetings, that was almost three years ago, to develop a police diversion program, we had a youth, uh, I think it was one or two youth commissioners that were, were in the committee. So if there was an opportunity for you to join that, uh, I certainly would welcome that. So you've already heard about the final recommendations to the Board of Supervisors. Um, we don't have an alternative to, to juvenile hall yet. We still are having young people locked up. Um, there are still serious mental health issues uh, that occur with young people that are detained for long periods of Detention, no surprise, they do deteriorate. We have some young people with serious mental health issues that should not be in lockup. Um, and so if you review um, the recommendations of the closed juvenile hall report, I'm going to direct your attention if you ever have a chance to read the report. The proposals are on pages 61 to 75. And one of the recommendations is to divert 80% of the young people that might uh, touch the front gates of the juvenile justice system. The well-being hub, I'm very excited to hear that right now we do have well-being, credible messengers to work with our young people the minute that they step foot into the system. I hope whether it's out of custody or certainly in custody, and that, that that well-being, credible messenger works with the young person and the family until they are 
terminated from the system. And I, I think what's also very important in terms of commun uh, expanding community alternatives and having the programs in juvenile hall for youth that are only temporarily staying there or who are now in secure track serving anywhere from a commitment of five to seven years um, ordered by the court, that the community programs share power with the probation department and, and the administration in running the programs in juvenile hall, that they are working with that young person from when they wake up in the morning until they go to bed. I think it's important to have the shared power and not be in the beck and call of the administration. And that was one of the recommendations of our uh, closed juvenile hall work group. Um, and there's a number of other um, recommendations, but if we build the juvenile hall, we don't want more than 20 beds. Uh, for girls, I don't think there should be a juvenile hall for lockup for girls. We can do better, and we have seen through COVID through over three years, there was a period of time that we had no girls in juvenile hall. And for the past several months, maybe one or two girls, and we have the young women's freedom here, and they can address those issues. Um, so that is my wish and my hope. That's on my wish list. I'm so happy to be here to discuss recommendations, the process that we went through, and it was a tough process. Um, it was not... Uh, uh, not everyone was in agreement, but for good reason. And when there's a disagreement, I think it's healthy. You can discuss change, and you can, and as you can see, um, I, I feel that we came forward with some pretty strong recommendations. And this is where I pass on the torch to you all to help advocate for these recommendations. So. Thank you very much, and I'm happy to answer any questions later on. Great. Thank you so much, Patty, for your presentation. Um, and then I'll pass it off to Commissioner Colleen to introduce the District Attorney's Office. Yes, thank you. So our final presenter is Tiffany Sutton from the District Attorney's Office. Tiffany Sutton currently leads and oversees alternative programs and initiatives and the juvenile division. She was hired by now Vice President Harris and spent 12 years in the San Francisco District Attorney's Office. Most recently, she was the Director of the Crime Strategies Division for the San Francisco Police Department. So thank you um, for being here today. Um, I, the public defender did have um, someone here to, to speak. Yeah. OK, so I think you have 10 more minutes. 13. 13. Let me introduce uh, Emily Goldman. I'm sure you have her bio, but I'm a, and uh, I was just doing my presentation on juvenile. Oh, so you do now, Yeah, I'm just a moment. Thank you, commissioners. Um, I won't, uh, 10 minutes. Thank you. Um, yes, I'm Emily Goldman. I'm a lawyer, um, and I am the manager of the Youth Defender Unit in the Public Defender's Office. You've asked me to um, explain the role of what a public defender does um, with respect to this work. And really what we do is um, we are um, 
we are the voice piece for the for the youth that enter the system, and that means that we um, we advocate for their express interests. And what that means is we try to get them what they want. We try to make sure that their voice is heard in this very scary, intimidating system. Um, <clears throat> what I think is most important with respect to this discussion um, surrounding closed juvenile hall today is to actually hear from somebody who just very recently lived this experience. And um, I would like to introduce Aimee, who is a former um, client of mine, but she has had a, a, a long journey um, through her adolescence in the youth justice system. And I, I always hesitate before I use those words because I, it, it's not the label I would call the system. And I don't think it, justice would necessarily be in part of the label that Amy would use either. Um, so I, um, I'd like her to just introduce herself and then maybe I'll ask her a couple of questions. Um, hello, my name is Aimee Ubis. I'm 19. I just turned 19 like a couple months ago. I've been in and out juvenile hall probably since I was 13. And when I hit 18, that's when I finally maxed out. So, yeah, here I am now. I mean, what, um, while we do have still a juvenile hall, what are, um, what are some of the experiences or the systems in that place that you had that you feel were harmful to you? And what might you suggest um, in, to, what, what, what experiences did you have in there that you thought were helpful, if any? And can you tell us what you think would have um, helped support you and your family um, better than what was used on, um, uh, during, during those years that you were with us? The hall is uh, cool. I got, I got adjusted to it because I pretty much grew up there my whole teenage life. And the good stuff about it is, yeah, there are some resources when you get out, but it's like when you're 18, that's it, you're 18, you're grown, you do you. And the bad stuff that I experienced in juvenile hall was probably more of like a mental battle than anything because fights come along with it. It's juvenile hall, you're going to fight regardless. Well, in some cases, but... Honestly, I think the staff there, they could do a better job in being fair all around, not picking and choosing who they want to help out because of their crimes that they came in there with. Because I feel like that the staff there favoritize like the kids who been in there for bigger stuff, like higher crimes. And the kids in there who go in there with mental issues, they kind of get like left out more and they're like look looked at as like the weird ones while the other kids who actually go in there for higher crimes they're in there living better than the mental health kids you told me outside of this commission meeting that um you had some thoughts about what would have been a more supportive helpful um lifting up of you during those very challenging years um, you mentioned something about your community that you came from and the people that really, um, really felt were truly supporting you and helping you exit the system. What did they do? What did that look like? Um, I grew up in the Tenderloin District, but I was originally born and raised in the Philippines. I came around eight, ended up in the Tenderloin District, and that's when I made it to the, um, what's this, criminal system or all the systems, I've been to a bunch of group homes, 
if I wasn't at home, I was either in a group home or I was in jail. And I think a, the best way to help kids like me who's been through it is seeing, like, I think the, org, uh, what's that, the programs and stuff, they should come see how we live our daily lives, maybe come visit our homes, how we have to live, how we have to sleep at night, stuff like that, see our neighborhood, see what we have to see when we step out the door. And, yeah, I think that's the best way to help us, seeing our actual environment. Is, is there anything else? I know we only have a couple minutes of even that. Um, and anything else that you want to um, reflect on about the impact that going through the system has had on you all those um, very, very, very long, many, many months in juvenile hall? What, what's your takeaway looking back on it now? I, I don't know. I guess, I guess it kind of made me, but it didn't break me for sure. I'm still, like, you know, I'm, I'm in college right now. I'm at CCSF. And... I'd say, like, the people who helped me, like, my attorneys and my POs, they inspired me to choose the career, like, that I want, which is also becoming, like, a PO or attorney. And I think that – oh, yeah. I think that um, helping, like – what's that? Helping with our – like mental health more like when we're in there because you kind of get lost while you in there you try to be like you you get lost with the crowd it's like whoever's the loudest everybody else gonna follow and i think it's hard to become yourself in there you can't do what you want to do if you read a book everybody gonna look at you weird like why are you just reading a book when you could be chopping it up with us and i think that because i was one of those kids who was just being a corner reading my book but i was like if I was also like, you know, in the mix of everything. I was trying to be my own person in there, do my own thing. And I think that's why I got my respect because the staff really liked how I like never really followed everybody else. I always did my own thing. I was always different from the group. I was always trying to encourage the group to try to do the programs because a lot of them didn't want to do the programs. And... Thanks. Um, I, I hope I can convince Aimee to stay around for questions afterwards, but I did want to say that what she articulated to me um, right before this hearing is that um, she actually did find it very, very uh, difficult to be her own person in juvenile hall, and she felt like she was sometimes able to, but with a lot, a lot of effort, and in a, in a different kind of environment, um, she felt that her individual individuality would have been um, fostered rather than suppressed. Thank you, everybody. Thank you both so much for that presentation. Um, hopefully we can answer or we can ask some more of our questions later. Um, but for the next presentation, I'll throw it back to Commissioner Colleen to uh, reintroduce the district attorney's office. Awesome. Okay, so our final presenter is Tiffany Sutton from the District Attorney's Office. Tiffany Sutton currently leads and oversees programs and initiatives um, in the Juvenile Division. She was hired by now Vice President Harris and spent 12 years in the San Francisco District Attorney's Office. Most recently, she was the Director of the Current Strategies Division for the San Francisco Police Department. Thank you, Tiffany, for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. Can you hear me? Yes. Thank you. I wish I could be there in person, so maybe next time um, you guys invite our office, I can be there 
um, in person to actually meet and address um, each one of you. So, but thank you so much for inviting the DA's office um, to present. As it relates to um, the topic of the day, the closure of Juvenile Hall, first, I just want to say that I applaud everyone and their effort in terms of our youth, um, keeping our youth safe. And, and having and, and talking about the closure of Juvenile Hall. I know I was on the Blue Ribbon panel when this conversation started. I was on the subcommittee. Um, and so I know how important this is. And let me just start by saying, I don't think anyone um, of us wants to have any youth detained in a locked facility. Um, I think that that just goes across the board. Um, however, there are laws, as Chief Miller stated, that you know, the state requires, you know, we have a locked facility as well as the federal law explains or defines a locked facility as well as the Superior Court um, has also talked about, you know, individuals or youth um, who commit serious type of crimes. Um, in some situations, there are instances where you know, need to be detained for public safety reasons. But ultimately, as someone who has had a brother um, or someone with a lived experience of having a, a family member incarcerated as a youth um, and then spend the majority of their life in prison, you know, which my brother was um, tried as a juvenile at the age of 16 and spent most of his life 28 years incarcerated, um, the lived experience of knowing um, what it does to a family, what it does to the youth, um, is something that this office does not take lightly in terms of understanding um, youth in our juvenile system. So again, I applaud everyone here in terms of advocating um, for our youth. Our office is also advocating, and, and the goal is really to prevent youth um, from becoming involved in our system overall. I mean, if, if we can prevent youth from even coming in front of a judge, I think we've, we've won 90% of, well, 100% of the battle. Um, so I just want to start by saying that we are committed to public safety. Um, there are situations in which some youth commit serious offenses, um, have to be detained until we can find um, a safe place for them as well as a safe, you know, for the community to be safe. I think also um, I just want to highlight what the public defender Patty Lee stated um, about the number of beds. There being 150 beds for juveniles, um, 29, 29 juveniles are currently incarcerated, six or seven of them are on secure track, and 15 to 20 young people um, are detained in other situations. And, you know, compared to the numbers beforehand, I think those numbers reflect that everyone is trying to be thoughtful about not keeping juveniles or youth detained. Now, can we get better in terms of lowering the numbers? Absolutely, we can always, but we have to look at these cases on an individual basis because if a minor commits a serious um, offense, then again, for their public safety as well as for the public safety of their community and the victims who were hurt or involved, we have to look at this from a whole totality of, of the system. So with that being said, this uh, commission was very thoughtful in providing us some questions, so I'll just focus on a few of the questions um, that the commission has provided. I want to just start off by saying under the DA, under DA Jenkins' leadership, 
she is very committed and focused in making sure that this office concentrates on prevention and intervention before a youth even gets to our office. And so under her leadership, um, she is asking that I continue or that you know, the chief as well as the manager of juvenile continue to look at our diversion programs. And we are we hear um, Emily Goldman and, and Patty Lee, they they, you know, they, they call it, they constantly are talking to us about our Make It Right and diversion programs. So we are hearing and we are monitoring and we are trying to make sure that we are sending cases to diversion programs. So let me just start off by saying there are three diversion programs, which includes Make It Right, uh, UCAP, which is deals with our unaccompanied minors or children, and as well as the after. Make It Right is a diversion program. It's victim-centered to where if a minor commits a crime that involves a victim, which a victim has to be identified, they have to be named. Um, we contact the victim. In some cases, in, in felony cases, we contact those victims to see if they would like to participate in this restorative justice process. Um, the victim wants to participate and the minor is willing and amenable to this process. We try to divert those cases out of the system before they even hit um, a courtroom. As well as we have the unaccompanied minor program, which is also referred to as UCAP, which is a partner or a collaboration uh, with US, USF, where those minors who are um, selling narcotics, we try to divert them out of the system as well. I recently got a report from UCAP that they are at capacity because, because they're a school-based, they have five to six individuals that they can represent. And so they are at that number and we're trying to find additional partners and ways in which we can increase that diversion program as well. As well as also just looking at other type of diversion programs that we might be able to implement in terms of our you know in terms of our juvenile division we are also committed to working with our community based organizations and to hearing from them as to solutions and other ideas and thought processes around diversion programs and or how this office can work better with the community in terms of supporting our youth so we really think that prevention and intervention and keeping our young people out of our juvenile justice system is most and is most important um, in, in all of these conversations. You also asked a question about uh, misdemeanors. Um, does our office charge for misdemeanor offenses? I think Chief Miller uh, touched on this a little bit, but our office primarily does not charge and focus on misdemeanor offenses. Those cases are diverted and sent to CARC. Um, immediately, um, we allow CBOs to deal with those misdemeanor type of offenses. Now, there are some misdemeanor offenses that might have to come to um, our office, which may include gun possession um, and or a sexual assault type of case. But those cases, we, we work with our partners in terms of what is the best solution and what is the best resolution uh, for, the, for the minor's best interest. Um, let's see. And just trying to focus on some of the questions that you've asked in terms of weaving it into the conversation. Um, 
And then you also asked about what are our expectations for our youth um, and our young people. Our, our expectations for our youth, you know, is, is for them to live healthy, safe lives and that they are not part of our criminal justice system um, and that they, you know, follow the law so that they don't get detained by officers or, or even come in front of us. And we are committed to working again with our community partners. We're committed to working with this youth commission um, and to be open and to dialogue and to hear what are some of the other thoughts and answers around working with our youth and young people. And so I don't have, I just mainly touched on the, the points in which you, you asked me um, in terms of questions and just trying to weave it into this conversation around the closure of juvenile hall. So thank you again for having me. And again, I look forward to really coming back to this commission and being and meeting you all in person and, and continuing to have dialogue on behalf of this office and hearing what your thoughts are and, and working with you around our youth. Great, so thank you, Tiffany, so much for presenting on behalf of the DA's office. Um, the presentation portion has now closed and we'll be opening it up for discussion and questions from the Youth Commission before we take public comment. Um, so I'll give commissioners a few minutes to look over their questions. Um, it's going to be in kind of a random order since questions may go for some departments, but other people might have questions for other departments. So we're just gonna ask a question and if anyone has an answer, you can come up to the podium. Um, but yeah, we're gonna begin the questions. Does any commissioner want to start? Can I take a point of privilege? Yeah, you can. We might just go down the list, if that's okay. Um, is this Commissioner Pimentel? Do you want to start with any questions, and then we can go down from you? Yeah, sure. Okay. I guess one of my first questions is just like if there's like I've just been thinking throughout the presentations if there's like any like mental health support available within juvenile hall. If so, what are those um, services? you are all offering? Sure, so I think, so the best people to speak to that are actually the Department of Public Health. Um, their program that's called Special Programs for Youth, SPY, ter terrible acronym. Um, they actually, we are actually um, one of relatively few juvenile halls that actually have 24 hour all the time services available for our young people. Um, and so they, not only are they providing that first behavioral health and physical health assessment the moment a young person gets to the hall, but they are serving and supporting young people throughout their stay in the hall. They would be the best folks to actually detail for you what their services are, um, but we would be really remiss if we didn't acknowledge that we are very lucky to have those partners on site all the time. It includes both nurse support and behavioral health support. Thank you. Commissioner Nish, do you have a question? Um, I'm not sure if I heard this wrong in the first presentation, but one of the asks that was mentioned was for like the youth commission or youth to like monitor funding that would go through into like juvenile hall for youth. I'm just, how would us as the youth commission like 
do that? And like, how would we advocate for that to monitor funding? And then I guess the other question, which is on the same presentation, is that one of the other asks was like, let's let youth say what they need to say to like what they need to be successful. And I agree with that, but I think that it's hard also for you to be given like a safe space to do that. And how would you recommend, I guess, creating that respectful safe space within like youth talking out to adults is like a really hard time normally because the system will push back. Like, how do we create that space? Okay, so your first question was around how the youth commission can actually help in the oversight or program management. Um, I want to I want to be clear, not so much on the program oversight, but you can ask for reports from juvenile probation department and DCYF to answer how many referrals were made and how many connections were made. Because we can say there were 22 referrals to this agency, but if only three actually made it, then it's only three. So if you ask for those reports, maybe quarterly, it would show um, it would show you all how our money is being invested or used or not used. We have um, different reports from juvenile probation department we that I've seen, and Chief Miller um, can maybe disagree with me, but from what I see, there are not very many referrals made to the nonprofits that are funded. Uh, through the DCYF um, RFP process. And so that, of course, as a person who lives in the community, I want to see kids connected to those services, and the people that are hired actually want to serve them. So how do we ensure that that happens? And then your second question, can you say it again? Yeah, um, the second question was, like, there was another ask to make, basically, to hear from youth voices what yes. they need to be successful. Like, how do we make that space? Because the system will always push back. Right. And I think when you have a probation officer and a police officer and law enforcement making decisions on what a kid needs in a different community, you're going to get implicit bias, right? Because they don't live in that community. They don't know what the struggles are of that kid. They don't know that that kid heard their dad beat their mom the night before, and that's why they were late to school and violated probation because they went to school late or they missed classes or they're failing. Um, so sometimes you have the conversation with the parents in the courtroom. When do the kids actually get to say, this is what I need. And maybe the mother needs to have a private conversation. This is what I need to get out of this situation so that my kid can actually sleep at night because I'm not getting beat because I can actually leave and go somewhere safe. And so asking the kid, and, and, and not all kids know what they need. I get that. That's why you have advocates, and the well-being advocate is a perfect example of, of how they can offer support, but really get into the root causes of what a child needs to be successful. And I will say this as a mother of boys that went through San Francisco Unified School District, there, were, there was a lot of violence getting to school where I was like, my, my son caught a case because at 15, I let him drive because it was safer 
for him to drive and maybe get pulled over by the police rather than take a bus and me risk having my kid beat down on a bus. Now, I had a, the resource of a car, and I was a teen parent. I just want to say I was younger. I would never do that now, guys, or not, maybe. Um, but, but there are very different circumstances that our kids face in why they do things. My son, an example of why he drove, there are several other examples of why I worked for the school district for eight years. Why one of the kids in seventh grade bought a gun to school every day? He's dead now, and we all, you know, he definitely was unsafe, felt it, knew it in middle school. Why didn't we intervene? Why didn't we ask him what he needed? I mean, those are all questions that we as adults can't solve. We failed. We've, we've systemically failed for decades. I was in juvenile hall. My son was in juvenile hall. So how can I stand here and say these programs, these systems work? Clearly, we made it on our own. But if my own kid was in the system, something didn't work, right? And so I come to you all because you are the voice of the kids who don't have that voice, who, who live in the hood, who live in the gang injunction zone and are exposed to gang stuff and all this other stuff that our kids go through, my own kid too. And, and so I plead with you all to what you can do as far as where you're at, you're leaders in San Francisco. There are kids that want you to lead for them, to be their voice. And so thank you for holding this hearing. Thank you so much, Tracy, for answering that question. Commissioner Helm. Who is Tiffany? Sorry. Tiffany from the DA's oh, office oh, yes. has her hand raised. Yes, sorry. Um, I would just like to to add to what um, what Tracy stated. I know that you know some youth may not feel comfortable like speaking out, but like Tracy pointed out, I think this commission is very powerful in terms of being a voice for the youth and maybe setting up different platforms or different spaces um, to where um, if you create a space for for the youth to speak and then but I, I I tell you I would love to come out and hear from youth and, and young people about ways in which they think our office could better work with youth and the community and what their thoughts and ideas are around the solutions around detainment or different um, avenues or things that they see um, so if, if there's spaces in which you create uh, where it's where it's youth led and, and youth are, are the the voice in leading the um, you know the conversations, then I definitely would ask that, that you reach out to our office and invite us to those type of conversations and forums so that way we can hear and people that are creating policy and procedures can then bring those thoughts and ideas back um, to to the office. So um, I, I just wanna to ask or, or extend myself out in that way. I just wanted to add one more thing, which is that um, during the closed juvenile hall work group process, there were some really, really powerful listening sessions done with young people and the people who care for them, asking those exact questions. They were done by community members, um, folks from Young Women's Freedom Center and young community developers who spent time in community meeting and asking those questions. And there were a lot, there was a lot of really great information that came from the heart, from kids going through the system, from their caregivers. 
that was part of the record created from the closed juvenile hall work group that I think is really worth looking at. Um, something that I'm always uh, concerned about is us asking over and over the same questions of young people and then not like delivering on what they say they need. And so we keep going back to that, back to those comments to see if we can deliver on that. Also, I want to note that Director Thomas has been spending time in the hall, sitting down with young people, hearing from them directly about what they need. Um, it's actually something I think we're doing together on Wednesday with our long-term young men to really hear from them about even how they want their rooms to look, right? So we're trying to do that in that space. But these comments that were um, that came to light during that process were for even like kids in the community, all kinds of settings, really worth a look. Great, thank you, Chief Miller. Commissioner Helm. Thank you everyone for coming um, and presenting. Um, it was definitely insightful. I do have one question and it is a, in, in relation to SFUSD. Um, are there examples of collaboration um, such as programs or services um, to, to um, support that partnership between advocacy groups and SFUSD regarding this issue? Well, I'm just going to swoop up the mic. I think that you guys are holding a hearing on Prop G and how that is going to be implemented. I think it's super important to support community school coordinators. I personally was a community school coordinator for eight years and we definitely had a plan, a resource directory for the schools that I worked at and um, I still keep in touch with those schools. So specifically Everett Middle School had a lot of um, newsworthy stuff going on last year and you didn't see them in the newspaper at all or the news media this year. It was because the new principal there let community back in and community programs back in to help work with the students that needed them most. So community program collaborations with school can work if we and I say we because Prop G is a voter passed thing that the Youth Commission will hold a hearing on if we demand that um, that with that funding, we collaborate with the partner agencies. Thank you, Tracy. Commissioner Barker Plummer. Thank you, Chair Wen. Um, I have a lot of questions, so I also want to say to you, um, feel free to cut me off. Come back to you. And then we can yeah. come back, yeah. Um, I took a lot of notes. <laughs> um, so I wanted to start out with um, uh, Ms. Brown. I have a couple of questions. So. It sounds like during the legislative process for the original ordinance, which was 2018-2019, um, you weren't aware of a lot of the restrictions that were on um, the county and the, and the judicial system. Can you explain kind of why that was difficult to find and why that didn't come up during the regular legislative process that we have? What we didn't know was um, that there were well, we weren't exactly collaborating with the past chief. So okay. uh, my boss, Supervisor Walton, um, was trying to meet to try to talk to him about closure, about reforms, and just not getting anywhere. And I think at that point, Supervisor Ronan and then her aide, Carolyn Goosen, who's now at the Public Defender's Office, they were working on this closure ordinance um, along with advocates uh, Center for Young Women's Freedom Center and a few other advocates and so they um, asked us to get on board with them and so we did not have 
any discussion with the superior court, which was our biggest mistake. And I go to different counties and talk about the closure. Um, and, and I will say that was our biggest mistake was not knowing. And I don't know why someone along the way didn't tell us. There was a lot of people that looked over the ordinance that we would um, be required to ultimately get the courts to approve it. Um, I'm going next week. Uh, me and Supervisor Walton will be visiting um, a facility in Hawaii that has reformed and, and created a rehabilitative facility. And so I would be happy to report back and send the notes over to Alondra and Joy and Josh on, on what we find. That would be great. Thank you. Um, and then to you, both you and Chief Miller, you both use the term um, non-institutional. I'm wondering if you could both say kind of what you, you mean by that and by what you're envisioning. Non-institutional would be a facility that is run by people other than probation or juvenile probation. Um, in, it's an alternative, so it's for, for youth that don't have to be in custody. And then the other one um, in the rehabilitative facility would kind of look like a college setting. Um, open doors, just kind of that whole different type of environment and mindset. And that was what we were looking at. And we do believe that that could happen. Um, we just don't believe that it can happen at the 375 Woodside currently how it is, uh, mm -hmm. you know, little jails. I would say that my understanding of it in the legislation when it was written was that it was really pushing us to think about what could meet for kids who do need to be detained um, really how can we be as imaginative as possible within the bounds of all of those state regulations right so what can a building look like that doesn't feel like a secure institution there are places trying this around the country and in california so for example there's another county right now that has been in the process of designing a new juvenile hall that really um, plays up all the soft and therapeutic aspects of it and then really masks the kind of security aspects so that it feels much more kind of like what Tracy just said. Can we have spaces that feel more like dorms, feel more like a college campus and don't have that um, carceral institutional feeling, even though, of course, you know, we're not so naive to know that any building that has to comply with all of those rules, it's not going to feel like a house, right? But how can it how can we get as close as possible to an experience that doesn't feel like you're in a secure setting? That, that's what I think our challenge will be going forward. Thank you. Um, yeah. Um, actually, come back to me. Okay, I'll come back to you. Um, so I have several questions as well, but we'll do another round later. First, for the DA's office, so I know that Patty mentioned earlier that since District Attorney Brooke Jenkins came into office, there's been an increase in youth who have been going to detention for crimes. So I'm wondering, I know you talked about how, you know, the District Attorney's office is focused on prevention and ensuring that youth get the support that they need. But I know, um, you know, with the role of the District Attorney's office, that can be a little difficult. So I'm just wondering, like, can you clarify a little? And I just feel like there's a little bit of miscommunication among like all of the presentations. Like I'm hearing that there's an increase in a number of youth who are entering detention because of um, you know the the change in prosecution and just like the attitude around um, 
you know, sending youth to jail. So I'm just wondering, like, what is the district attorney's office doing about that? And if you can clarify a little bit. Sure. So I think, first of all, I think we, we cause, cause, because I look at a lot of the data around, you know, just the various crime trends and different things like that. Um, and pre-pandemic, um, and when you look at pre-pandemic, our, our numbers around the different crime types are pretty much similar in terms of our numbers for robberies, aggravated assaults, and different things like that when it comes to our, comes to juvenile juvenile numbers. And next time I can bring I can bring more information. Um, and so during pandemic, you saw those numbers go down a lot. And I don't know, but anecdotally, um, you think about our youth and our, our children. Um, generally, they're not in school. They, they weren't in school during pandemic time. They weren't in school. They weren't in group settings. Um, and, you know, and, and so now that we're out of the pandemic, we are starting to see the number of different types of crimes increase. Um, mainly what I see is a lot of, like, robberies. Um, assaults, um, different crimes like that. Now, all of those, when they make it into the court system, all of those individuals are detained. Um, and whether we make an argument for detention or not, it's ultimately the court's decision as to whether they keep a minor detained or not. Um, and so I think that that's also a piece in terms of the conversation. The DA's office is just one part of the conversation in terms of public safety and 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 you know, talking to the court and laying out the facts um, around the, the the minor and, and what crime was committed, as well as you have the other side, which advocates and, and explains to the court why it wouldn't be an issue to release the minor because it doesn't it doesn't rise to a public safety issue, and or just explaining to the court the other circumstances around, and then the court makes a final decision as to whether the minor, and then probation also weighs in one way or the other as to their recommendation, and so then the court will make the ultimate decision as to whether a minor is detained or not. We have seen an increase of arrests, and we have seen more cases presented to our office. But that doesn't necessarily mean that on all of those cases we're asking for detention. Thank you. Um, I'm sorry, and I just I have maybe a slightly different response. Um, there is no doubt we are seeing an increase in filings. Um, in in the, the district attorney's office, filings have gone way up, um, and it is not. Um, it cannot solely be addressed by pre-pandemic, current pandemic, post-pandemic. We are, we, we generally have um, uh, several categories of offenses that we see very regularly in the juvenile court. And what we are seeing, um, unfortunately, are some, a very large category of those cases are no longer going to diversion programs. And, and um, they're just not. Um, even even those that um, are mandatory bookings um, under the past administration were going to diversion programs in, in, in very many situations. Certainly um, very, very young children, 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds, 14-year-olds, and the district attorney's office has that discretion to file a case or to not. Um, they can make the referral to a diversion program or not. And um, um, I think that uh, that that absence of the diversion programs, um, the, the particularly the restorative justice program, make it right, 
is, is really what is seeing a, a very large category of our higher numbers of, of formal filings. That and um, uh, drug offenses are still being diverted as, um, as, as stated earlier, but not to the degree that they once were. So we have several um, kids in juvenile hall right now for drug offenses that would not have been there and probably wouldn't have been formally filed on in the past. So I, 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 my perception is um, a lot of it is a change in policies and administration. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly the district attorney's office can weigh in on whether a young person should be released or detained once a formal petition is filed, and they very often do recommend to the court that somebody should be released, and that's um, that. You know, we 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 are on, we're largely on the same page in those situations. But the district attorney's office can also decide not to file a case at all mm -hmm. and to send to community programs, and that is what we um, are seeing happen uh, very, very, very rarely, um, if at all, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And I had a quick. Follow if I could just. If and and I'm Sorry. not gonna, I don't mean to go back and forth, and I'm sure this is yeah, yeah, I don't, space. I don't think we should make it a discussion yeah. like that, but if I could just ask a quick follow-up question to either of you. Um, I was wondering, I mean, do you, is, is the reason why there is less people in diversion programs because there's, like, a decrease in the amount of diversion programs, or is there, like, a substantial change in the administration and in these policies? Because... I just think there's a lack of transparency, quite frankly, about what's happening to these kids that, you know, that aren't being referred to these diversion programs and what's happening. And I feel like the district attorney's office is saying that they're investing in prevention and in solutions like diversion, but I'm hearing something completely different. So I was just wondering if you could clarify a little. I'm sorry, when you say clarify, because we're well, like, the, the make it right, and I'm not sure what happened under the prior administration because I was not a part of that prior administration, so I don't know um, actually how victims were responding, but in talking to the manager of our juvenile division and when she is calling victims, and remember that the victims do have to agree to participate and make it right, that a lot of the victims currently are not wanting to participate in some of these diversion programs, which that is, is my understanding in some of these cases, what is happening. And with the Make It Right, that is a, a victim-centered program to where for it to work, there either has to be the victim willing and or the victim wanting a surrogate to participate on their behalf. Okay, thank you so much for the clarification. Um, and then I just had one more quick question before we go to the next person. Um, I was wondering, for for Tracy specifically, I know you mentioned that you don't think it's possible for the Woodside location to feel less like a jail, um, specifically because of like the little windows for the cells and everything. Um, and I know that Chief Miller talked about wanting it to feel more like a college campus, but you know that can't really happen since this has to comply with all of the rules. So I'm just wondering, like, you know, some of these rules are state law, and a lot of that stuff we don't have control over. So what's going to happen if there's all of these things that we want and that we desire for these kids to feel safer and more comfortable, but we can't actually change because of state requirements? So I'm just wondering, like, either Tracy or Chief Miller. And I can clarify in my question, too. Just, like, since... Since you got, since we want this place to be more rehabilitative, but there's all of these requirements that we have to comply with with state law, how are we going to do that? 
and I know and, and I know on our tour you talked about like doing like smaller changes, but I feel like substantial change can't happen unless something happens to these state law. So I'm just wondering like what's the status on that and if anyone's working on that. So I'm gonna let Chief Miller talk about the actual 375 Woodside site for the kids that have to be there. But a lot of the kids, and when she gets up here, she can tell you how many of the kids actually don't have to be there. So unaccompanied kids who, who get arrested and who don't have a mother or father to pick them up, and then they end up waiting for a foster care placement, there's not very many foster parents out there that want 17-year-olds that committed a, a, a crime. So I'm talking about... When, when I talk about this, yes, we would love to rehabilitate that facility and it's gonna be hard and Chief Miller knows and she's trying to work on it. But in the meantime, where is this other rehabilitative facility that we can actually open right now if we had the resources and according to state law are not required to hold those kids. So two different sites that we're talking about. Got it, thank you. Question, do we have time for public? Yes. Home. Yes. They have time to present, and we also have public comment. Yeah. We'll just we'll go through the rest of the commissioners just because we have to before we take public comment. But we should be wrapping up shortly. Sure. And so I'll be super fast. So you know, I so I would say two things. One thing is that even one of the architects who designed the current juvenile hall and who designs secure places for youth as a profession recently said to me that they would never design our hall that way today, even with all the state regulations. So I think there's been a lot of change in what's possible as, as architects have come along and learned how to be more imaginative within those constraints. So you don't have to look at the building today and think that there's no other way to comply with those rules and have those tiny windows, right? Yeah. But the second thing I want to acknowledge, and to Tracy's point, is we have done a lot of work to really try to have young people not be in the hall who don't need to. So, for example, when I looked at our numbers last week, there were zero young people in the hall because they're waiting for a placement. That's why we have those foster beds. That's why we have the boys home. That's why we send most young people arrested for drug offenses to Huckleberry House instead of bringing them in. So we are really doing our best to make sure that anyone there is there because the judge has decided they need to be there and can't be released. But I would say I think that there is a lot of room still between what the state tells us we have to do and what we can all come up with. Thank you, Chief Miller. Commissioner Utting, would you like to ask your questions? Yes, thank you. Um, and thank you everyone for being here today. I was curious if anyone knew if there were any programs or services that have been like most effective in preventing youth returning to juvenile hall, entering juvenile hall in the first place, or just anything supportive of youth in this system. And if the effective or most effective or just very effective pro programs and services um, if there were any of them that were lacking in services and support. You can get that number from DCYF. They can they have the data and they can send it over to you guys to review. That was nice and quick. Thank um, you. And then I, I had another question. There was mention of like looking into other places like Hawaii or, you know, traveling across the state to look at other juvenile justice systems and facilities, and I was wondering if someone could elaborate on what else is being looked into that San Francisco could model after and what some maybe current lessons learned are or maybe what you expect to learn in the future, given that not all these things have happened yet. 
don't want to take time away from anybody who's waiting to speak. I'll just say that, you know, there are places around the country we could look at for different models. Almost all of them are for young people who've already had their cases completed, so it's different. Um, but I still think they offer some lessons, and frankly, some of the best places that we could look at are not in this country at all. They're in other countries that have figured out how to be much more humane and compassionate in their secure settings. Can I just ask a follow-up? Is there any, is there like research being done into those other countries or is that just not like a feasible option? There's some conversation about if we could take people around the world to look at places, but nothing de definite at this point. Great, thank you. Commissioner Lestana. Um, thank you so much um, for presenting. And my question is like, for the public defender's office is like how involved are y'all in like supporting youth when they enter the system and is it just in the beginning or do y'all like support them throughout the whole process and just adding on to that how successful is like your work in supporting youth in the system as well I, I'm going to try and answer it really quickly because I want other people to be able to ask questions or yeah I'll say can I jump in um you don't have to cut yourself short like all of us have to ask our questions and all you guys need to present that's the point of this hearing um, so I want to thank the public for all of your patience and I want to thank commissioners for your patience but please take your time and I think every part of this hearing is really important so we'll get to it and we'll get to public comment um, the public defender's office is involved um, at the moment uh, the moment of arrest as a matter of fact, um, there is legislation that um, now requires the police department to contact the public defender's office when a minor is being arrested. So we are providing support and advisements um, on the street. Once a young person is booked, we are um, in juvenile hall um, speaking with them, supporting them, doing a deeper dive into their issues and needs even before um, a case is filed, and we support them all throughout their system involvement, um, and in fact, even post-system involvement. Um, so it's it, it's um, we're we're there every step of the way, and sometimes the representation is very short if somebody's only involved in the system for a short time and then has a home to go to, and sometimes the representation can last many many years. Thank you so much. Commissioner Miller, do you have any questions? We can also come back to you if you don't. Yeah, if you could come back to me. Yeah. Commissioner Adair? I need to come back to me too. If you okay. Don't. Commissioner Hillman? Commissioner Wong? Uh, Commissioner Terrell, do you have any questions? Commissioner Barker, or Commissioner Anish, you wanted me to come back to you too, right? Um, for the sake of time, I think I will just come check back in and like an email or something. Okay. I'll be as quick as I can, um, and I will also, some of these I'll put into an email. Um, Who? Um, excuse me, like, they're trying their best. Please be patient with our commissioners. They're also youth too, so please be patient. Um, so... Please, y'all, like, please, like, we're not trying to be, like, hard here. Like, just let them speak as soon as possible, please. I, I beg you, like, let's, come on. So I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit about the money that is going to be saved by closing down a larger juvenile hall facility. Quite, how does that funding um, 
where does that extra funding basically come from? How does downsizing to a smaller facility save funding that can then be reinvested? I know that that's something that the working group had. It's actually outlined in the working group. I, okay. I'm, I'm sorry, in the ordinance of how it would be um, put aside to that account and how the money would then get reallocated. That would be a decision, I believe, that would come from Chief Miller's office once that money was there um, in discussion with, with JPD and, and the budget, the actual big budget. But it would be set to the side there. And I believe there is some money already in that pot. Thank you. And then my last question is just around the um, 20 versus 30 beds or slots. Um, I guess my question to the public defender's office and to the um, working group would be, um, it seems like if we're aiming for 20 and we have exactly 20 beds, that leaves us without any wiggle room. And my concern would be that in the case that there was, you know, more than 20 young offenders who have to be um, detained, where does the 21st, the 22nd, the 23rd go? And how do we make sure that in that case, those people aren't then going to an adult facility? Um, the people going to an adult facility is a very different population. Those are the people that are facing the most serious charges, such as murder, rape, um, robbery with, uh, you know, with gun use and, uh, or serious injury. So, but the, the number 20 actually is generated from the data and needs assessment committee in the closed juvenile hall uh, uh, work group report. And they felt comfortable with that number after having digested um, files of approximately 100 young people that have been through the system. Um, and, and given the numbers that we were monitoring um, from the beginning of the closed juvenile hall work group to actually currently, um, I, I feel very comfortable that we can maintain a safe environment to address public safety with only 20 beds um, because the other um, side of the ordinance, which is funding the community alternatives, having diversion. When you have 80% of the young people that are touching the system, they don't need to be detained, their technical violations and what have you. This is where we look to the community to de develop uh, those alternatives to detention. And so my concern is that yes, right now, we're looking at, we have to have a, a secure facility that the judges will approve. I feel very comfortable with 20 beds. I've been working in the juvenile justice system for over 35 years. I've seen the numbers where juvenile hall was overpopulated. And I have seen the numbers over the past, now it's going on four years. And I have also seen the growth of community programs that are listed in the report. and. The, we need to make use of those programs in a very creative and a very, very intentional way. So I really, I've answered your question. Well, uh, to clarify, what is the procedure in the case of there are more juveniles that need to be detained than beds in your proposal? Because you've, you've frankly, you've limited yourselves quite a bit, and I worry that that's sort of shooting ourselves in the foot when it comes to trying to make sure that these kids aren't in a jail. Well, when you have the 20 beds, when, when you look at 
There are girls being detained right now, okay? Anywhere from one to two girls on an, uh, any given day. There have been months where we've had no girls. And I feel that we really don't need to have a lockup for girls. There are other alternatives. We've had the girls shelter. Uh, unfortunately, we, uh, that funding has gone away. And so that would reduce those numbers by anywhere from two to three, it might. But I also feel that when you have the options available, I think that those are the young people that the court would feel comfortable with strong viable alternatives to detention that they would consider a placement for that young person in, in that um, alternative de detention, which includes intensive case management. It could be placement at the boy shelter. The boy shelter has seven to eight beds. And I will tell you that for the majority of time, those beds are being funded, but not all the beds are being used. And so there are some young people right now in juvenile hall, the boys, that actually could go to the boys' shelter. And those beds are being paid for. Thank you. I think Commissioner Colleen had a really quick follow-up question to that. And if you want to ask your other questions now, too. Thank you. This is also to the public defender's office. So during your presentation, you mentioned that currently there are 29 youth in the facility. So this is kind of adding on to Commissioner Parker Palmer's question about limiting yourself to only 20 beds when there are currently 29. As I mentioned, six or seven of those young people are not part of that um, uh, pre-adjudication or pre-disposition um, population. Six to seven of those young people are now, um, and this was uh, agreed upon by the um, Secure Track Committee, uh, that those young people would stay in juvenile hall. And I, I believe that um, Chief Miller has addressed how they're trying to provide the programming. So if you are to subtract the six to seven young people from the current 29 that, that were just brought in, and there are, I, I think it's one or two girls, right now, but I, I don't have the, the uh, data on that. But I do uh, believe that if you were not to consider the secure track, we could very comfortably have a facility for 20 beds while expanding the alternatives to detention. Thank you. Thank you. My next question is to Chief Miller. Oh, good. Oh, <laughs> Chief Miller. I, I did want to add that this is a... Unfortunately, a place where the public defender's office and I do need to disagree. There are 29 young people in our custody today. One is at county jail. There are 28 in the hall. Six of them are with us for those long-term secure court orders. Um, where, where one place we don't agree is that I, I feel responsible. I am responsible, literally, for all of them. They've all been ordered by the judge to a secure place. So it's not as easy for us to say we're going to separate out those six. Um, but even without them, we would still have more than 20 young people today. If we go above our rated capacity by the state, I believe the other option is that the court needs to send them to a neighboring juvenile hall where we have no control over their programming and their experience. So I do really want to say that um, 20 beds to me is not sufficient for actually meeting the, the needs of the young people who 
by law or by court order have been told they need to stay in secure custody. Um, and the other thing I want to say about that is wiggle room matters. <laughs> so, so we have young people right now um, spread across multiple units uh, because they don't feel like they can safely live with each other. And if we create a space that has 20 beds for 20 kids and there's some young people that can't be together, I don't actually uh, think that we're doing our best for them. So I do think that I think space matters. Um, I know we'll continue to debate the number, but those are things I think about a lot. And I know now you said the next question's for me, so I'll just stay here. Yes. Well, just thank, thank you. you for clarification on that question as well. Yes, thank you. Um, this is kind of regarding to what Amy mentioned. Um, is there any way for the youth in Juvenile Hall to give honest critiques or feedback about staff treatment um, to you all without receiving retali retaliation from staff? Sure. So there's two ways. So every county, every juvenile hall has to have a grievance process um, within the facility. And when our, if a young person has a grievance and they submit a, a grievance through that process, um, it goes in confidentially. It's handled by an independent ombudsman who then will reach out and try to work with the young person and the staff. Also in California now, there's a new state entity called the Office of Youth and Community Restoration. Any young person who has a complaint, they don't even have to go through their local juvenile hall to resolve it. They can actually go directly to the state with their grievance and then the state handles it confidentially. So there are two different paths for young people to raise concerns that they may have um, around any treatment that they're experiencing in the hall. Thank you. And then my very last question very quickly was to Tracy. I'm curious if the Board of Supervisors have worked with um, the courts or had any meetings with judges on the closure of juvenile hall or like um, reaching an agreement? Uh, we have not reached an agreement. We have met with judges. They've come to our um, the work group sessions to hear what we were doing, but we have not reached any agreement. Thank you. Thank you. Commissioner Colleen, did you have any other questions? No, that is all. Uh, for okay. today. Thank you. I think we'll cut off the questioning portion for now. And okay. Commissioner Dare, do you want to ask your question? Yeah, and I'll I'll try and keep this super short because I I realize that we're running late, but I'm I am i am not. All right, I'm I'm sorry, but this is just for um maybe for Chief Miller, and I know it was addressed earlier. I think Amy like mentioned that um um. All right, I'll try and speak into the mic more. Um, like the question of mental health and how that's addressed at um at juvenile hall because I think we want to focus on the conditions there and like have have other people in in those spaces talked about like staff treatment and whether it's it, there's favoritism and more attention directed towards people who have done certain things compared to in there for mental health disorders and is this like an ongoing conversation? Yeah, I mean. I would say, like, I wrote it down when Amy said it also because it was the first time I'd heard it described that particular way and I really appreciate that. I really I find a lot of wisdom in what Amy says about her experiences in the hall. Um, I haven't heard it described that way. I will say that uh, the question of how we do our best to support young people who may be experiencing significant mental illness or in crisis is something that we're really continuing to grapple with. So we take it seriously. I took it seriously, but I, um, and it's something, and I know the director wrote it down too when she heard it, and something that we're going to really continue to dig into. I don't have a better answer than that right Thank now. You. Thank you. 
Thank you so much, Chief Miller. Um, so we'll close off our questioning portion for now. And if commissioners have any further questions, we'll be sure to email you guys or set up other meeting dates. But um, we're going to take some public comment now. So staff, do you want to explain how that's going to work? Yeah, so for those who are here in person, you can start by lining up on the side of the pole um, or podium. You'll have uh, two minutes uh, for public comment. So then after everyone here in person is done, then we'll go towards uh, the WebEx system. Yes. So you guys can line up behind the podium if you're here for public comment. I have a chicken outside. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Can someone else? Good evening, everyone. Oh, I'm sorry. I almost kissed it. Um, my name is Ruby Pacheco, and I am a former foster youth, and I'm also a resident in District 7. And um, today I'm speaking as a foster youth, and as I witness the direct foster care to prison pipeline, the horrific effects it has had on many youths within my community, I am not alone in this trauma. Therefore, I stand in solidarity with Reimagining Youth Justice Coalition, and I ask the Youth Commission to also stand with the community. Thank you. Hello, my name is Violeta Vasquez. I'm the Youth Engagement Coordinator with Five Elements Youth Program and a member of the Reimagine Youth Justice Coalition. I'm here as a San Francisco born and raised resident and as a concerned community member. The city and county of San Francisco voted for the closure of Juvenile Hall. We were, prom we were promised the doors would be closed in 2021. It's been nearly two years since the institution has been re repurposed to still incarcerate young people. The community was against the use of $11 million a year to incarcerate the youth of San Francisco. We rallied for alternatives for those who come in contact with the system and prevention so that alternatives wouldn't be heavily relied on. In the basic needs of community, if the basic needs of community are met, there is no need for criminalization of the poor, marginalized BIPOC community in San Francisco that is dwindling due to racist and classist policies like creating a new facility of 29 beds. During the pandemic, the average number of youth incarcerated was significantly lower than that of what Patty Lee just shared with us. On average, there was anywhere between six to 10 young people in a 150 bed facility. We see a direct correlation of the school to prison pipeline with the opening of schools, being severely underfunded and underprepared to receive thousands of students coming out of isolation, schools opening their classrooms to continue business as usual and increase the number of incarcerated youth. We can model after Hawaii and LA and no probation and no juvenile hall, but really what you need to turn to is the community that is here in the city and county of San Francisco. Those closest to the problem are also closest to the solution and they just walked out the door. We don't want 29 beds. We, I don't want 29 beds. I want zero young people sitting in jail, zero young people being criminalized, zero young people having to survive systems without the opportunity to thrive. I wish this hearing was not about reforming an institution of 150 to 29 beds. I wish this half a million for a new facility was going towards prevention and being used to secure more funding to support the youth and families of San Francisco. Had the HRC and all other departments on this issue seriously took into consideration community leadership, not taken over half a year break during the planning, rushed the resolutions and took. Thank you for your comment. Discussing the possibility of a new Thank you. Public comment is now closed. Or, thank you for your comment. Your time is over. Thank you. Thank. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your. Also, if we could please limit all applause. 
during public comment. Thank you. You can keep it. your um, support in snaps or um, waving your hands, <laughs> like what they do at the Board of Supervisors. Thank you. Sure, Diddy. So my name is Tori. I work for the Young Women's Freedom Center. I am a San Francisco resident. Thank God I haven't been pushed out yet. I hear people talking about the community. I feel like the community that's coming into the community is not the community that we started with. So I feel like people making decisions, it should be people that's directly impacted by these decisions being made and not the newcomers and the techies and everybody else. Um, I don't know if I can question y'all, but I don't have any of y'all ever been in juvenile. So like I've been in juvenile, I've been in foster care, my mom was on drugs. I feel like the only way that you can really help people that's impacted by the system is first addressing the trauma. Give them their fathers back. Take the, get them, their parents was a strung out on drugs because who was putting the drugs in the communities? Like, let's talk about the trauma first. Like, seriously. Thank you. Um, Kazadi, pronounce he, him, his. Um, I'm just here as a Frisco native. I'm third generation impacted by incarceration. Third generation. My family migrated from Samoa for opportunities. This is supposed to be the wetland? No, it's not. So my, my advice to y'all young people, if y'all not directly system impacted, take advantage of those seats. Get down with these young folks who's actually impacted. Who got, y'all just seen the mama walk out, right? Who had a young kid, right? She y'all age. And y'all told her she had to wait. But she had to go somewhere and be somewhere because of her baby. So all I'm advising to y'all, and Tiffany Sutter, I got a message for you. We've been emailing you since last year. We still ain't sat with you since at the table. And so if you're going to say you're going you gonna to schedule something with us, come meet these young people who's directly impacted and the rest of your team. We even did a rally in front of your building, and nobody came out to talk to us or schedule an appointment with those who are directly, directly impacted by this incarceration system. It takes more than a village to do this. So if y'all really for us, learn your allyship to young people, learn your allyship to people who's directly impacted. That's all I gotta say. Thank you. Okay, I, I wanna make sure my heartbeat is calm, okay? Um, my name is Jane, pronoun she and her. I work for the Larkin Street Youth Services, but I am here to support my community. Um, I also am a single mother. Um, one, I'm here to voice for our youth um, for, to keep juvenile hall shut. Um, the ages in juvenile hall, the ages from 12 to 17, correct? They don't have a voice, right? So just, and just can you imagine them? They don't know how to talk their way out of or talk for themselves at that age. Again, me, myself, I am a former um, juvenile hall. I was incarcerated in juvenile hall. YA, county jail, and prison. So I'm here to speak about the juvenile hall because back then there was no services provided to me. They just shipped me off because of my crime. There was nothing provided, counseling, nothing. So I could just imagine what these young adult youth are going through with no voice. So I'm here to voice for them. And also I want to say, Catherine Miller, for your presentation, what you presented, who would you place in those positions to help our youth? Are they, will they be able to connect with our youth? Or have they had those experiences? 
Seriously, let's keep it real. Now you guys want to bring this this on board, but what happened years ago? Like my son was just arrested too as well. He's out. He's doing well because for me, living that life, I was able to connect with and have a relationship with him. We we have that relationship to where we could transparent with each other, and they honestly, my kids respect me because of my life, what I went through, and now I'm working for the community. I'm I'm saving lives as well. Um, and, and, and create a platform. Let's highlight the mental health. What, what, what services are you guys wrapping around? Like intensive healing services around our youth and family as well. It's just not the youth. Let's, let's come together as, as, as a family. Thank you for your comments. Your, your time is over. Your two minutes is up. Thank you for your comments. Thank you. No, excuse me. Can I please, y'all? Like, they're also you. Like, we're truly trying here to know what's going on. No, but we we let y'all know that it's two minutes. But, no, no. Excuse me. No, please. No, excuse me. No. Okay. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. No, we truly understand and. I have that experience. No, ma'am, I have that. No, no, excuse me. Please. Don't yell at the youth. I, excuse me. I'm the director here of, of the Youth Commission. Please, please, they're youth. I'm here to protect them. I'm here to advocate on them. Y'all are yelling at my youth. We're truly here trying to help you. We directly advise the Board of Supervisors and the mayor. No one has done anything since 2021 for this advocacy. We were not involved in these conversations and we're... It, we're we're not even no sorry excuse me let me be more professional about this can we just get on with it and then direct excuse this later me. excuse excuse me I, I i apologize for for raising my voice no excuse me the youth commission has not been involved in these conversations since 2021 we okay You can make me I've been publishing on years. Since before creating resolutions, and you guys have a time and an effort We've been going to your meetings, your coalition meetings. No, we. No, yes, Lucero can can yeah. No, no, yeah. 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 Thank you. Lucero, I, I apologize. Do you, do you want to do your public comment? My name is Lucero Herrera. I'm the lead organizer at the Young Women's Freedom Center and a representative of Reimagine Youth Justice Coalition. I am also speaking here as a community member who has been impacted by the system and someone who works with the youth inside Juvenile Hall. 
As our, as our grassroots coalition committed to cultivating creative and cultural collaborations among youth in SF, with the goal of transforming systems of poverty, policing, and no incarceration by reinvesting into lasting solutions and prevention of mass incarceration. We challenge juvenile justice system reforms that continue the violence of police, prison system, and legal system. We envision community safety and healing from the oppressive cycle of current and generational harms in our communities by merging movements for racial justice and systems of immigration, education, community safety, civil rights, and community accountability. We ask people impacted by the system of oppression believe in transformative justice and reparation as critical piece of reclaiming our agency and self-determination for liberation. Together, we believe we can heal and transform systems for a healthier future. I was asked to speak here today, and we take this opportunity to speak up about our observation of lack of critical and genuine community input and the transformation of systems towards a vision of love, care, and healing. What we observe doesn't reflect the demands that we set out to start this campaign. As much as we know juvenile hall isn't going away tomorrow, but we believe in creating a long-term vision for a new ecosystem of care, of youth, for community creating safety measures for youth, for alternatives to incarceration, with alternatives and prevention. We believe that the larger problem within the system is the culture punishment and the lack of emphasis on prevention to reduce and sustain our youth to population to zero. The community should reclaim its power to create an alternative outside of these institutions that have historically oppressed our communities and profited from incarceration. Anyone who believes in science and fairness understands why we need to keep the youth out of the adult system. For years, young people have been working to dismantle inhumane and unfair policies that criminalize and harm youth. Our youth feel like they are perceived as a threat. This is a system rooted in punishment, not the root cause of that young person's need. Young people have demanded we take time to heal when we get the support we need in our communities. We are looking for opportunities for youth, not just a place for youth to be for a few hours, but a safe home with services and resources and get connected to their community with positive support, not be held at JJC. It means we are intentional about matching the youth up to a program that will address the needs and empower them to be positive members of their community. See our organizations and our professional staff members as leaders in this process. Those closest to those experiences, the problems are the best fit and closest identifying the solutions. We need to directly address the basic needs, the youth and their families and the highly support the idea of universal basic income that reaches them directly. We believe in the power of community to create alternatives outside of, outside of law enforcement, both as long-term demand and the need for transformation, but also immediate need to reinvest in prevention and reduction of the youth population to zero. Because we believe in the power in community and our young people. I'm someone who was charged as an adult at age, age 17 here in San Francisco, and I believe in alternatives for youth, not incarceration or charging youth as an adult. Thank you for your public comment. I think we can go to the WebEx. Hi. Oh, good evening, yeah. young ladies and gentlemen of the chamber. Um, my name is Julie Falatina. Um, in 1983, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make this real short because I know you guys are tired. 1983, I was 13. My first trip in juvenile home. Um, it became a revolving door for me. 
until I went to group home. I was sent to group home and group home had been a big opportunity for me because I came from a background of Hunters Point. I'm, I'm from Bayview. I'm 52 years old today, this year. I'm a founder of my own organization. I serve the community. I help the unfortunate family, shelter them, um, give them positive um, energy to be able to continue to make it in the city. But I believe every youth in this city deserves the opportunity like you guys. Even though we come from different backgrounds, the youth in this city is the future of this city. So I believe our background, our youth from our background deserve to sit up here like you guys do. And I have the opportunity to have this education, to be commissioned, to be judged, to be lawyers, doctors. You know, I'm just here just to voice my, my opinion and my belief on my community, my youth of the, the city from the background that I grew up, you know, just you know, just give us more housing. Give us more housing for a group home. Don't give us no juvenile. That's not gonna solve no problem. That's just gonna make the problem even worse. So I'm just asking you guys, you know, just think about, you know, make the right decision. You know, we all was up here talking to you guys and all we want is the better, you know, the better service for our community, the youth of our community too. Thank you, have, you, have a good night. Thank you. Thank you for your public comments. We will now, Thank you for all our in-person and public comment. We will now move it to online. If members of the public online would like to provide public comment, please press star three or raise your hand in the WebEx app. Chair Wen, I will now unmute the first caller. Yes. Call-in user, um, please press star three. I have... I have sent a request to unmute. Also, can I take a point of personal privilege? I'll hand the gavel to Vice Chair Parker Palmer. Yes. Are they not unmuting? Hello, caller, you have been unmuted. Your two minutes um, have begun. Uh, hello, could you hear me? Yes, we can. Hi, thank you. Good evening, Youth Commissioners. Uh, my name is Jose Luis de Mejia with Coleman Advocates for Children and Youth and the Reimagine Youth Justice Coalition. I want to just, you know, first of all, thank y'all for holding this hearing. Um, I, and I would like to, you know, on behalf of our young people and some of our folks from the coalition um, that got quite heated and upset, uh, a few minutes ago, you know, just, you know, make it clear that, that we're not upset and they're not upset with you all, right? Um, we're upset with the system, right? We're, accept with, we're upset with uh, generations of trauma, right? Gener um, 
and false promises, right? Uh, those young people and, and uh, the Young Women's Freedom Center are literally the ones that initiated right, the campaign to close juvenile hall that then led to the supervisor, Shimon Walton, passing that resolution. And as survivors of the system, this is deeply personal to us, right? And I just hope, right, that you can um, take today and some of that, that righteous anger that, that came out right not as directed to you all but as a result of this pain right of folks that like i was saying have uh experienced right generations of incarceration and are fed up right with false promises um and i hope right that you all as as leaders of today and in your position as youth commissioners, right, will stand in solidarity with us and people that have survived the system um, to be with us, uh, hopefully invite us back so that we can present to you all in length, right, about the original vision, right, that led to this work that we're here, that you all just heard from these departments about. Uh, because there's also a lot of straight up disingenuousness, aka lies, right, from the DA's office, from and uh, the fact that we know uh, that her boss, DA Jenkins, right, has got her position, right, from saying that she was going to charge youth as adults, right, has been reopening youth cases to try to give them harsher sentences, right? And so there are officials right Thank now you for your comments. Uh, that are part of the problem there and hope that minutes. we can be reinvited to speak with you all. Thank you very much. Thank you for your comments. Next caller, please. Could you hear me? Yes, I can. Your two minutes have started. Okay. There are two of us here, so if you could give another two minutes after. Uh, I, Andrea, am an organizer with Coleman Advocates for Children and Youth. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Okay. Sorry. I'm like, hard to know. Uh, I am here, right, and want to just emphasize everything that the Young Women's Center is set up right before me, like that as a person that works with young people that are being pushed out of our school system, that are being criminalized, right, and put in the criminal justice system, and also as a person that has been affected by this system and been pushed out of schools, that we need that we encourage the youth commission, right, to partner with the ones that have been impacted, right, because it's hard to make a decision that you don't have experience for, right? We believe that the, you know, the ones that are need to be at the center, right, are the ones that are being impacted by these conditions. The ones that are being impacted have the solutions, right? And the solution is not upgrading this juvenile hall, right? We believe in the, that we don't want any juvenile hall, right? Some people need support, our community needs support, and offer these alternatives and reinvest money into our communities and our young people wouldn't have to be. A lot of times we emphasize that Crimes, but we don't try to look at the root cause and the way the system continues to criminalize our young people. That our young people are not getting the supports, right? Like, and the continued lies from different departments. Okay, is 
doing to lock up our young people and criminalizing our young people instead of offering support and saying that they want to partner with the community is a straight lie because we have been reaching out as an organization, as a coalition, and we have not gotten a response. We continue to be pushed out and taking away from the conversation when we want to involve our is here. I was there with my young person and have to leave because it's longer. Our young people want to be hurt. Our young people have the solutions. Our young people are frustrated. Also hurt in those continuous Thank ways that they're criminalized. Just being young people of color in our communities, and we need to continue to Thank listen you. to the ones who are impacted. So I urge you to continue to partner with us. And I have one person. Can they go next? Uh, can I also Thank get my two minutes? Wait, is this a second? And public comment? Yeah, it'll, yeah, be, it'll okay. be a second public comment. Well, I don't know if I can travel back to Chairwin. Yes. Okay, what was um, that? your two minutes have started. Okay, thank you. So, yeah, um, my name is Art. I'm a common advocate. Uh, yeah, so, you know, I also grew up in the system. I, I was um, I was put into group, group homes, you know what I mean? And I ran away from group homes. And uh, and then my city actually kicked me out of Marizzi from Sacramento, and they pushed me out of my city, right? So for a long time, I dealt with that, you know, experience of, like, you know, not knowing where, the, where I belong, right? And I think what, what, what I want to speak more to is, like, really emphasize y'all, right, um, y'all energy towards that preventative, right? Not, like, you know, these are cages that we, we you know, that it's cages, and it's also not just physical cages, right? It's, like, very, it's a bandaged solution yeah. working with people that come from around the world. Like, one of the brothers that's there right now, so he's from Samoa. My family are refugees from Laos, right? So it's, like, a lot of our youth, right? We, we, we get put in these systems, and we're not really knowing. Like, you know, when we leave our, our hoods, or, you know, our neighborhoods, going to schools and stuff like that, we see a whole other world. So when we get to these schools, they don't feel reflect where we come from. So, you know what I mean? Like, and I guess what I'm trying to say is, like, you know, I mean, what I would like y'all to think about is, like, get yeah, a preventative spaces before, they, you know, before they make the decisions. And I think, like, we are, we have a lot of CBOs throughout the city and, and you know, and hopefully throughout the states and in America and in the world where we're working on, uh, you know, uh, our own solutions, but working with y'all. And I guess to, like, just close up what I'm trying to say because, like, you know, uh, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta look at it from the fact that it's not really working. It's not really the, what's going on isn't working from the outside in. You feel me? It gotta work from the inside out. You know what I'm saying? And I think like, like a lot of the folks there right now, yeah, you know, when we look at y'all, we know y'all don't know what we're going through, right? A lot of the, the youth that's out there that's going to jail and doing these things because y'all don't come out to the neighborhoods because of the way you know the San Francisco segregated a lot of things and things are kind of things are done by design. They don't just happen, right? So I guess with that being said, I don't want to be like singing to the choir, you feel me? But Look at the preventative measures, you know what I mean? Uh, look at the different type of programs that we could do, right? And, and look at the group homes all, all and group, home, group homes always don't work. So you know what I mean? Uh, uh, preventative spaces. And thank you so much. Yeah, let me speak. Thank you. If members of the public would like to speak and have not already done so, please press star three or raise your hand in the WebEx app. Okay. Oh, good evening. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. And your two minutes have started. 
Thank you. Good evening. My name is Juana Teo. I'm calling on behalf of the Reimagine Youth Justice Coalition and Five Elements Youth Program. Um, you know, while I can't see what's happening by participating over the phone, what I can say is that I very much feel and share the sentiment of frustration um, that was expressed earlier by young people and organizers in our community with the system process and some individuals who have um, literally set us out of conversation um, and like was said earlier with reoccurring false promises and just giving a lot of respect to all the young people on the front line who initiated this campaign from the grassroots while there is a limited memory through these institutions about where the vision was cultivated, we're here to remind you that this came from the grassroots uh, perspective of young people. And so uh, in that light, I, I thank the Youth Commission for allowing us to bring this conversation back to the forefront because it has been limited transparency, um, also limited political will to dream outside of the box and to really center prevention. And the frustration that we feel are because of the bold faced lies some of the manipulation of data that we disagree with um, that just try to justify more cages or, or revamping of a new facility. Uh, we've had no access or limited response from some elected officials and literally shut out of some spaces. I want to uplift what was said earlier, again, the importance of allyship, transformative allyship with young people, and really asking yourselves, right, how did City Hall not see the legislative loss that was coming that we're going to be at, at this moment? Uh, presently, we know that the role of the courts is a big factor in this decision. How did we not see that with the resources, staffing, and power at City Hall to know that that was coming? And more importantly, now that we're in this position, what are we willing to do in order to actually shift policy at the state and federal level? How are we using our power locally to be in, be in solidarity with efforts in other places that are shifting the narrative and shifting our, the possibilities for young people? The ground Work and the vision is held by communities, and the people in, in these institutions need to listen to the, to the young people. Thank you for your public comment. If members of the public who would, who would like to speak and have not already done so, please press star three or raise your hand in the WebEx app. Again, if members of the public would like to speak and have not already done so, please press star 3 or raise your hand in the WebEx app. There are 11 attendees, but um, Chair Wynn, there seems to be no public comment online in mind. Thank you. Public comment is now closed. Um, Thank you so much to all of the presenters that are still here with us. Um, and thank you to all of our commissioners for asking really in-depth and thoughtful questions. I'll pass it back to commissioners Pimentel and Colleen to give closing remarks on this hearing, and then we'll move to adjournment. Yes, um, I want to say thank you to all our presenters for taking the time to today and presenting on the closure of Juvenile Hall and the work that is being done so that the youth inside are supported. I understand that there continues to be questions, concerns, and frustration regarding Juvenile Hall and the Youth Commission will continue working with community organizations and our city to support and have the best interests of our youth represented. Um, so once again, thank you to all the presenters for answering our questions.
And we would also like to thank all of our attendees for taking the time to participate in today's discussion and for engage, engaging in meaningful conversations. Your thoughtful feedback and insights will be critical in helping us ensure that a solution that has the best interests for the youth inside is made. So the Youth Commission looks forward to continuing the work together. Thank you again to Commissioners Colleen and Pimentel for calling this hearing on a really important matter. Um, and thank you again to everyone that came and helped with this. Clerk, can you please call item number seven? Item number seven is staff reports. However, we do not have any staff reports and we will be sending those over email. Thank you. Clerk, can you please call item number eight? Item number eight is adjournment. I mean, announcements. is announcements including community events? Yeah, so commissioners, now is the time to share any community events in the next following weeks if you have them. Um, let's see. Are there any announcements? Seeing none, um, clerk, can you please call item number nine? Item number nine is adjournment. Thank you. This meeting is adjourned at 7.42 p.m.